so many questions I want to ask you. Like, how are you, each and every one of you? I'd love to know, really. I'd love to know how the introduction and making explicit the kindness in terms of working with experience, how that affected you. It was really a privilege and a pleasure to sit with the groups today and hear what people are working with, what they're seeing, what they're opening up to about themselves, in themselves, on the level of self and the level beyond self. All of it. So I think I want to start just by following up with the theme that Kirsten introduced around kindness. Um, and I'll start with a, a poem that is on this piece of paper because somebody on retreat left it for me a, a long time ago and it's some of you will know it. It's called Kindness by um, a North American woman. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted carefully, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, he, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deep thing. You must wake up with it, speak to it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrow, and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and to purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. And kindness... Um, one way I like to understand it, working with it, you can work with it many ways in practice, explicitly, 
you know, through metta practice, a practice that is entirely dedicated to cultivating this beautiful quality, working with it, with bringing that metta quality to our insight practice, to how we meet experience, how we attend to each thing that arises. How I, yes, how I like to think of it, as I've practiced in that way, is that kindness is actually something that can be cultivated, but it is also an aspect of our nature. We cultivate it, we grow it, we support it with wise conditions, because it reflects something that is actually true and real about us when our dross clears up, when our unskillful patternings aren't what's up. Kindness is actually something quite natural. And some of us don't trust that. I've known that for myself, that if I really have my experience, it won't be kindness at the bottom, it will be something, you know, dodgy. If I really let myself, if I really let go of control, if I really start to trust in the unfoldment of things. In the Dharma, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a formulation on the map that the Buddha offered called the four Brahma Viharas, which are the four divine abidings. Brahma is like a word for divinity, divine. And Vihara is a dwelling place. The four divine abidings. And what that means is these four beautiful qualities are actually we could say, the faces of the awakened mind. That the Buddha, or the awakened one, or us, when we are unencumbered, and yes, we work with our encumbrances, we know about that, that's a lot of our path. But in those moments of unencumbered, being unencumbered, One of these four faces of the heart is what can meet ourself in the world. So one uh, one student once said to the Zen master, what did the Buddha do during her lifetime? And the Zen master replied, an appropriate response. Short answer. Yes, the Buddha had a very long teaching career and was quite brilliant in his discernment and precision with the map. But what was he actually doing? Moment by moment, it's an appropriate response. One of the things that defines his particular quality of awakening is that capacity to meet each one where they are and respond appropriately. It would be different for each one. It's not like everyone needs to get down into the meditation hall and do exactly this. It's an appropriate response of meeting exactly that being where they are. So when we're unencumbered, the face of kindness is one possibility, the face of the heart of compassion, where the love is particularly tuned to the suffering aspect of humanity or life. The third vihara of joy, of the capacity to rejoice in 
the goodness in the waking up, in the path, in what is wholesome and beneficial in this world. And the fourth face of, or the fourth uh, uh, facet, you could say, of an un- the unencumbered mind is balance, equanimity, where the heart is equanimous, it's equally close to all things. It's not making preference, it's um, guiding star. And one way that I've come to understand kindness, where it is natural to us, is that as we explore, as you're doing, on the cushion, again and again and again, walking back and forth again and again and again, what we see, what starts to wake up, as we get more here, as we get more firmed up with the gathered mind, the samadhi, the resting one of the things that wakes up are what are called the sankharas. The sankharas are the patternings of mind, the impulse patternings of mind. Um, and I'll speak a little bit more about them, but you, what, for example, what that means is, you know, you might, as somebody said in the group today, actually, I was there calmly, calmly, breathing in, breathing out, and suddenly, whoosh, I don't like, Suddenly this pattern came in. They don't always come in so dramatically. Sometimes they do. They can be very kind of full on. And I was minding my own business and suddenly this kind of gnarly, twisted sense of self arises. It can be very quiet things sometimes. A sankara where we're being with our experience, taking our step, and suddenly we just kind of opt out. We kind of drift back and disappear from contacting experience and that might be our patterning (coughs) many 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 patterns we have kindness is as we explore our relationship to this patterning our greediness our aversion our opting out we start to recognize like in that story That too could be me. That too is me. And as we see that patterning, recognizing, yeah, this too, this too is here, this judgment, this anger, this fear, this love, this incredible tenderness, this sensitivity, this firmness and commitment, this, you could fill in the gap, couldn't you? fill in the gaps, this terror, this joy. And as we learn more in practice to handle some of these formations, and it's not easy sometimes, some of, sometimes we're overwhelmed by something and we believe it and we become it and we act it out and we get dumped on the other side and have to wake up and pick ourselves up again. But as we learn how to handle these patternings, we see that we can't, can't, can't say that any one of those patterns is me, because actually they keep changing. Right? As someone else said today in the group, this, this uh, sankara arose of this pattern, 
And then there was a kind of equal force in the other direction saying, I shouldn't have that one. It was a kind of an angry Sankara. And then this, no, I shouldn't have that. Any of you experienced that at all? No, I shouldn't have fear. Or I, I'll do sadness and uh, I'll do sadness and tenderness, but I won't do uh, firmness or strength. Right? We have our ones that we're happy with and, and those that we're not. As we keep handling our own mind and keep coming back again and again, there's all kinds of things that come to the surface. We, it seems like at times we've got all beings in there, right? Coming up to be seen, met kindly, handled, and to be liberated. So kindness, therefore, can be seen as, yeah, I'm of the same kind as you. I'm the same kind. I'm the kind that's sensitive. I'm the kind that can be really outraged. I'm the kind that feels things very deeply. I'm the kind, you know, on a physical level with eyes and a nose and arms and legs. The more we narrow down around the sense of ourself, when, as Kirsten used that metaphor yesterday, we seal off something against the ravages of time. We seal off an idea about myself. Let's say I am terrible. I seal that off. The more limited a perception I have of whom what I am, the less the kindness can flow. The kindness is born of saying, yeah, I'm the one that can feel this and this. I'm the kind that cares deeply. I'm the kind that sometimes doesn't give a damn. I'm the kind that has all these different patternings arises and I can't really say I'm any one of those things. And that frees us up a little bit. It's like, mm-hmm. The other one becomes less scary in that moment because we know, we've seen it here. We've seen it here. It's not so scary so recognizing what kind we are and the more limited a kindred we have the more limited is our kindness you know if I, if i'm only the kind that belongs to my family that's as far as my kindness goes or this nation or i'm only kind i i'm only um identifying with uh, people who don't speak loud Right? So someone who speaks loud is a little bit of an unknown quantity. So how to handle these um, patterns that emerge, because that's really the translation of, one of the translations of our practice on the cushion and into our life at home. These places where practice can actually be applied to how to work with these patternings. So sometimes people have a mistaken view that practice is to completely have no patterns whatsoever, no habits whatsoever. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what unconditioned means. Practice does point to the unconditioned, that which is not born of conditions. But we are patterned, and certain patterning is really useful. I have a pattern operating, as do all of you, that knows how to speak English. 
It's a pattern. It's a conditioning. It's a particular structuring that means when I wake up tomorrow morning, all being well, maybe I can't tell about tomorrow, but this morning I woke up and I didn't have to learn it again. The pattern's there. I can slot right in and know how, how this works. Dharma isn't trying to erase our patterning, but one level of wisdom is to discern which patterns are skillful and lead toward the end of suffering and which patterning is harmful and leads away from the goal, leads to more entanglement, more entrapment. And that's uh, what's called uh, one level of wisdom, to know the difference between what leads to more suffering and what does not. And we don't always know, do we? Like we might start acting on something and we don't know that it's going to end us up in some kind of tangled heap later. We don't know that. That's what we learn sometimes with the years the kind of wisdom that can come with age sometimes, not necessarily, but sometimes. We go through certain things and, oh, I remember being about 25 and in a, uh, no, how old was I? 22, I think, in a terrible relationship. And it was, what's a nice girl like me doing here? You know, how did this happen? As if it was some aberration of, of uh, life not seeing that actually conditions had been set up that I wasn't aware of, hadn't followed. Not, and again, Dharma does not therefore impute that it's my fault. That's really going too far. It's not making good or bad. It's seeing that can, certain conditions arise and lead to certain results. Certain other conditions arise, and if they're supported, they lead to other results. There's not an entity... Uh, a selfhood which is doing that. Certain conditions get supported, they have results. There's a kind of lawfulness to that, actually. So let me give you an example. Um, Some time ago on the train between Devon and London, I actually uh, was really looking forward to my cup of tea that I had to walk to carriage F or whatever it is you have to do to go and get your cup of tea. And I didn't know what I was setting up because I wasn't completely awake and aware to what was going on. I was busy with something else in my mind hadn't quite realized how much I was investing in this cup of tea. A lot of our investment goes on below the radar, in a way, of kind of, I'm investing something and I, yeah, well, hopefully it will get clear. And um, I eventually went to get my cup of tea, paid for my tea, walked all the way back through the jiggling train with my tea, taking care of my tea, really looking forward to my tea, tea, tea. You know this kind. Of, I mean, it's not it's not an ethical issue here, but it's it's you know it's interesting where it goes. Got my tea, waited for my tea. I was really you know delaying my gratification for my tea. It was going to even be better tea, and had my biscuit, and then I was really ready for my tea. 
opened up the thingy, and the tea bag was not in the hot water. <laughs> so obviously, I have an idea of how things should be, and probably some of you have the same idea <laughs> of how tea should be, especially in England. I don't expect that in Holland. So what happened was there's the moment of contact. There's I see tea bag dry, water hot, getting less hot. I'd waited ten minutes already. Should have been nicely brewed. In that moment, meaning starts to be made and imputed. In that moment, there's an unpleasant sensation which arises first, which is actually the kind of coming down from my expectation. Right, it's like the sort of inevitable disappointment, but I couldn't quite sense that. It got picked up in consciousness, and this happens in about two and a half seconds. Have you seen how fast the mind moves? It happens in a flash. It's like, <gasps> and I even saw myself in in my mind this kind of righteous English woman. I never seen her before. It's like, but this is England, <laughs> you know. It's like wow, who's she? I've never seen her before. I don't normally show up. That's not that's not my self image, you know. I go to Holland, and yes, it's not hot water there. And so there's this kind of disappointment, the anger, and the righteous indignation starts to build. I can't yet see it. This is like second one point five in the progression. I can't quite yet see it. Next thing I see, I'm opening my mouth to the woman in front of me on my table seat to try and rope her in. Do you know what happened? And I started to, I started to wake up in that moment. This is like second 2.5. It happened so fast. 2.5. Do you know? And I could sort of feel my body. Do you know? And she was very, it was, she was a good mirror for me. She was like, mm-hmm, uh-huh. <laughs> she didn't pick it up with me. She didn't spin with me. She didn't become my partner in let's create a joint sankara and spin together. All right. She was just steady, and mm-hmm. and I woke up. Sometimes it needs the steadiness out there. Practice. Eventually, we have the steadiness here too. We wake up. Oh, aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh, I see what's happening. Building this pathway. And I, I've seen that one before, not quite with that vocabulary and that condition, but I, it's like, uh-huh, I know where this leads. In that moment of settling, of presence, not trying to push it down, not making myself bad, not making the guy at the tea place bad, but that energy that got built up starts to kind of um, slow down. It doesn't necessarily immediately disappear because something has gotten built so in the presence, right in the center of that, it starts to slow down. You can feel the kind of, oh, the, 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 there's a kind of a dying feeling, like something's dying back. We're being dropped back to earth. We see, I saw the patterning of mind and one that I didn't really want to follow. So on retreat, we can see similar things. Sometimes somebody said today, um, with a retreat habit of, yeah, over the years I see this habit that arises where I, you know, I observe people and I, you know, have my favorites and my ones, I, all of that. 
And I do this little dance with it on retreat. And then the person said, and you know, I don't think I need to do that anymore. And it's not like a a shoving something away. It's more, ah, I've seen it. It no longer gives the juice that it once promised. The heart is seeking something deeper. These distractions aren't fulfilling me. Somebody left a note uh, for Kirsten, actually, but I'll respond to it um, just before the talk about finding the tools really helpful around working with pain this morning and then finding this afternoon that those same tools weren't working. Right? How to... How we handle what arises in a way... We can have tools. They're very useful. We couldn't really do without them in a way. But the tools need the infusing of the beginner's mind. The mind that no longer picks up a tool and says, okay, if I meet this in this way, it should all be better. The freshness of the Buddha's awakening of the unhindered mind is the appropriate response, which actually is fresh, is immediate. And anything that was yesterday's attitude, if we try and bring it in, may not do it. As, as one teacher says, Ramdas, he says, if you're being with pain in order for it to go away, it knows. <laughs> can you see? You can get it, right? It's like it knows. It's like, sorry, you're not fooling me. You're coming with that kindness. I don't buy it today. Right? Because the kindness is a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, it's like, okay, if I come with kindness, or if somebody said today, I had forced kindness, it's like, and forced kindness is, is fine. It's just that it won't um, be the liberating uh, quality that it is when it's connected through. <clears throat> so I want <clears throat> to um, read a story that speaks to that person's question, and some of you have probably heard this many times, um, but it's, it illustrates a lot. A lot of dharma is in this story. And it's from one of, <clears throat> one of my teachers from 21 years ago. Um, he's a monk and still a monk, and um, Ajahn Sachito in the um, Thai forest tradition. And he had just done a very uh, a long pilgrimage through North India of all the, the Buddhist holy places. And there's two lovely books, actually, which um, tell of account of his journey. But at a certain point in the journey, he arrived in Bodhgaya, which is in, in North India in Bihar, where the famous tree is, which is now a, a descendant of the tree. But it's the tree where the Buddha sat under and realized uh, what he realized. And he arrived there at a retreat in the Thai temple, which was taught by one of our teachers, and he was a, a guest, and he gave a Dharma talk. Um, and this is a little extract from his Dharma talk. 
he said. Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain. That will do it. Here I am being with the pain. Being with the pain, it's not working. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's better. Oh, no. Cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, four. Angle the cushions to the left, angle the cushions to the right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. Five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts. And I don't like it. A very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually come to that, except what one glosses over in a few words. Instead, I had acted upon I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking. I tried, and so here's the list of trying, which we all do. I tried to think, well, you should like the pain. Pain is good for you. Or, no, pain is bad, make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into the fact that I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it. This is the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. So he had a lot of commitment, not quite matched with some other qualities at this point. Pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, what about the middle way and all of that? (laughs) Hours go by, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain, my mind had been through every various circuit of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. And it came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Ignorance does get tired after a while and has to take a break from being ignorant. Ignorance can be a rude word, can't it, in English? It's more ignoring, ignorance coming from ignoring something. Um, And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it without the let's open to it and make it go away or let's open to it and that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right, all right. Then I began to see and feel this sensation throbbing away and it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And because of the choice, less attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that and there's this terrible kind of, no, no, going on. Oh, resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitter bitterness towards the pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm just sitting here trying to be peaceful. Go away. And this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life. 
upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt like my whole system was some kind of mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me, saying, How long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt a sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and the pain, me and the pain, and then the whole thing dissolved very gently and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say thank you. Finally, I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. No, so it's like coming into the fire sometimes of the contact with experience <clears throat> and coming into the fire not out of martyrdom or a sense, a false sense of stoicism or that makes me good, but with the real interest to understand the nature of what we are. And it's in the fire that the, this, these responses arose. You know, if we try that tonight, thinking, thinking, okay, now I can imagine I'm a dog, and, you know, it's not going to work. It's the beginner's mind that is fresh and willing to keep encountering, keep making the encounter with experience, not with yesterday's lenses on it. And that can feel scary sometimes. There's this um, lovely cartoon of um, from Calvin and Hobbes, which is an American cartoon of uh, this little six-year-old boy. I think he's called Calvin. And he has this f- uh, pet tiger stuffed toy who he has his little reality deals with. And sometimes it becomes a real tiger in his imagination, etc., etc. And um, there's the little strip where he's inside watching telly and his mum shouts at him, go outside and play. And he just ignores her, I think. And the second one, go outside and play. No! He shouts, go outside and play. And she gets him by the scruff of the neck as he's shouting, no! A little bit like in that story. She dumps him outside the back door and she says, why not? And he looks up at the sky and he says, it's too real. It's like, it's like, what do we do with this encounter with reality? Or as Nagarjuna says it, 
What do you do with a world that just doesn't go away? It's like, keeps appearing, keeps appearing, keeps appearing, internally, externally. I've tried all my strategies. I really have. I'm sure I've got more up my sleeve. But that kind of breathtaking um, uh, intimacy with ourselves and each other, the inevitability of the fact that we're connected, even if at sometimes that doesn't seem like a great idea. Maybe um, I'm just realizing that there's a lot that I would really love to share, but it's also important that it has an ending, this talk. So I'll kind of limit it a little bit. But um, I just want to give you one, another formulation from the Buddha, which uh, some of you may know, but that may support uh, how we relate to working with our life, what we do with this heart um, heart mind <clears throat> body so one of the formulations in the tradition is um, it's called it's threefold and it's called sila samadhi and panya sila has to do with the ethical uh, framework the ethical support of uh, skillful behavior um, that we endeavor to engage in as a foundation for our practice Samadhi has to do with the mind cultivation um, of uh, the gathering, the firming up of presence, actually, that gives us a, a, a grounded, embodied presence that's here and now. And there's a lot more to that. And Panya is wisdom and wisdom on, an, on a number of levels, but that that wisdom is supported by this framework of ethics, of firming up, cultivating the oneness of mind, and then the wisdom that can discern clearly what pathways lead to happiness and which ones do not for ourselves, So that we can learn, yes, we can still learn in retrospect, I'm sure we'll continue to do that all our life, you know, Sometimes it's a very, very long gap between learning and retrospect. You know, something happened when you're 20 and at 50 you go, oh, I get it. Right? Sometimes it's a 30-year gap. Sometimes that gap can get shorter and shorter. And as we practice, we can sometimes experience the immediacy of the lesson right there and then. And sometimes the wisdom lets us know we don't even have to pick up that pathway. We don't even have to go there right now so a brief a brief um, broad strokes on each of those pieces as some sort of scaffolding to maybe hang your experience these last two days on and your understanding sila the ethical code which uh, here is the five precepts that we spoke about on the first night of uh, guidance around our behaviour actually, to do with speech, sexuality, 
um, intoxicants, steal, not stealing, and thank you, not not um, taking life. Thank you. So that as a foundation, and if I if we look at it from the the theme of the retreat of connecting and letting go, this has a, a, it has both in it, but it expresses a, a letting go of engaging in certain behaviours, um, either because we understand we're at that place where we get it. It's like, actually, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go into gossiping, not because that makes me a good person, but actually, it doesn't feel great. It leads to harm. It leads to um, confusion and spinning and division and... So it may be that we take on the precepts. We may not have any wisdom yet, and they're still useful. We can take them on because we might have faith because somebody wise who I appreciate says, try this ethical code, see how it affects your mind. The point of the sila is that these behaviors are in harmony with the inevitability of our interconnectedness. So if we refrain from gossiping, for example, um, or divisive speech, if we refrain from that, it actually supports the harmony of our own being. It supports us to rest a little bit. It's less agitating. It spins us less. It doesn't mean we're morally superior. It means I'm just making a choice here that supports my mind and, and does actually support the world but supports my mind. What's interesting about taking on the sealer framework is it also may come from a place of deep wisdom that it may be an expression of our realisation or awakening. And what the effect of, of the sila, of giving ourselves a boundary around certain behavior, is that it will uh, do a couple of things. One, it will let the mind settle, and one, it will reveal the sankharas. It will resi- reveal the unwholesome patterning. So, for example, um, unwholesome patterning around greed, you know, wanting to consume everything and have everything. Uh, aversion, which we've talked a lot about, about wanting to uh, get rid of everything that I don't like. And delusion, which is basically believing that the surface appearance of reality and who I and what I think things are is the entire truth. That we kind of go to sleep to a deeper view. If I decide not to... Um, be divisive in my speech. Okay, sometimes I might slip up and then we can come back again. It's okay, we don't have to be perfect. But in the moment that we actually have a choice about it, we may feel that urge, you know, on a very basic, very, very common experience for many of us in the workplace, for example, in the staff room, for example, uh, People huddling and talking about someone else in a way that's not very kind. And trying to pull us into it. 
Right? Have you ever had that? Ex- or we feel we want to pull in because it's something juicy going on over there. Right? The decision to take on an ethical guideline is I'm not going to go there. That will then show up in my own heart and mind all of those pulls to need to belong. The pull to actually, I don't want to be outside of that. If I want to be one of the crowd, I have to, you know how it goes. I have to conform. Or we have to make a big point of our not joining in and become the righteous one or whatever we do. But it's very courageous actually to um, to take on such precepts when the pulls are so strong. What's really important to remember is that if we take these on and we find ourselves actually not only joining in the divisive speech, we're actually leading it and loving it and we'll wake up to that at some point and we'll feel it, we'll feel the impact of it and we don't have to beat ourselves up. What's so lovely about the path of wisdom is that we wake up, we feel the result and it's not a collection of, oh yes, I'm bad. That's not at all in this map. It's these conditions lead to these results. These conditions lead to these results. Okay, I've been around the block a few times here and I have a little bit more choice. Um, a, a really simple example for me, it's really a deeply conditioned pattern. I'm on a retreat and I'm in the shower and somebody's left their very nice expensive shower gel there and it's like, great, I can have some of that. And I can feel that impulse, that like, let me have consume, get something for nothing. That, you know that human tendency? <laughs> I can really see and feel that urge sometimes. It's, it's changed a little bit over the years or comes and goes. And there's all the justifications in the mind of like, ah, oh, she won't mind and share and share alike and all property is theft anyway. And, you know, all of that coming up to try and support my, <laughs> right? And to check that, just to check, that doesn't make me bad. It just makes me see that kind of hungry, hungry, consuming, oh, this is greed, uh-huh. I see. Breathing with it, sensing it in the body. One thing the the Buddha says is, uh, this is my paraphrase from a quote, is um, monks, he often addressed his monks, monks, and for these purposes you are the monks. Monks, because you do not see clearly, you keep cycling round in the same grooves. That's my translation of it. Monks, because you do not see clearly, you keep picking up the same things and following the same lines and don't know liberation. And when he says, because you don't see clearly, the seeing is seeing with our discernment, our wisdom, our capacity to recognize, oh, yeah, this is greed when I'm reaching for that shower gel. (laughs) I see. But the word for seeing that's used also refers to feeling and sensing. It's to fully know something, to fully, fully know it. 
So I can feel it in the body, that kind of lunging forward to consume. And I can feel it in the heart of the agitation. The agitation that is at the base of our restlessness and our spinning in our patterning. So to fully see, to fully know, is on the level of the head, the sensitivity of the heart, and the sensing of the body. body is a big clue for us in these things. So maybe just a little bit more. How's your energy doing? It's, it seems like you're awake. It really does. Because it's, it's not actually helpful to overload too much if you're oversaturated or any of us are oversaturated. I'll just finish this framework. Samadhi is, as I've used the word, the firming up the presence, that we actually need some presence to work with any of our patterns or else we spin in them. So we might have some discernment and go, oh yeah, I'm in this pattern, but we're, we're spinning in it and we may need to take care of the level of the ethics and the samadhi, the coming back to the body, the grounding. <sighs> okay, just this. I don't have to sort out all my patterns right now. I don't have to fix anything. In fact, we never have to fix anything. It will come to us when we're ready. And here it's not an ethical question, it's not about harm, it's about making choices with the mind about where we place our mind. So I have one friend who um, has a pattern of, as he would put it, talking too much. He, it seems like he can't help it, it just keeps coming. He can't actually stop, it's actually quite painful for him. On a social level, um, you know, when you're cornered by someone in a room or a party or whatever, and he just can't stop. And very sweetly, um, some years ago, he wrote a song that he sung. And it was, uh, the, the gist of it, I can't remember all the lyrics, was about saying... Yes, it was, it was a funny song, but it was also very sweet. It was like, yes, yes, I talk too much. Please serve me kindly by telling me, by stopping me, by reflecting kindly back to me. I need your help with that. Was the gist. It was much funnier than that in the song, but that was the gist of it. He was like inviting the Sangha to say, hey, that's great. Remember that song? And you go, oh. Where are we turning our mind to? What actually supports the cultivation of the mind? You know, I, and we can again, we can learn it for ourselves many times. Again, it's not an ethical issue. So I remember a few years ago, somebody lent us the whole entire box set of The Wire, which is a, if you don't know, is a TV uh, part series. And, we, and I, I don't have a TV, but so people lend us DVDs. It's very exciting. And um, so we watched one. I didn't understand it until the end of the first episode. And it was like, oh, I wonder what happens next. 
you know, that kind of normal thing. Nothing harmful in that. But it's setting up the mind in a certain way. After three episodes, one after the other, not one week after the other, but one after the other, I felt like I had a hangover. It was kind of like, mind was still, yeah, but what happens next? But there's a kind of, oh, what's happening to my the consciousness here? Mm-hmm. So there's that compelling thing. And then there's the wisdom that goes, hmm, hmm, is this what I want to cultivate? And again, it's not about bad or good, or it's about, hmm, okay, maybe one episode next time. All right. What we cultivate here on this retreat, what will support it? We actually do need conditions that support us with practice. And when there's some presence, some samadhi, much is possible. It doesn't mean we have to be perfectly grounded or perfectly still or perfectly concentrated. But as that firmness deepens, then lots becomes available for us to see. (coughs) This is um, from Kabir. He says, The blue sky stretches out further and further. That daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forth, this kind of sun. A million suns come forth with light when I sit firmly in that world. The blue sky stretches out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forth with light when I sit firmly in that world. And as the samadhi deepens, we gain more trust to sit firmly in this world so that when our difficult things arise, We might see them sooner. There might be enough trust arises that something really difficult arises and spins us, but we can find our way back. It might be that sitting firmly in that world means that certain patterning peeps its nose up and doesn't compel us. And the third part of that model, panya, wisdom. Wisdom in one minute. Oh my God. It's probably really not the, a theme for one minute, is it? Let's see what might be useful to say to um, complete the picture a little bit.
Well, I've already said something, haven't I, about the the level of wisdom that that can discern which pathways to follow and which ones not to, and that can deepen as the samadhi deepens. Actually, the wisdom can deepen because because actually, probably all of us have a lot of wisdom. We know that if we cling to things, we suffer, right? But the knowing of that doesn't necessarily yet fully translate into everything that arises internally and externally. You know that feeling, that kind of gap between, but I know clinging leads to suffering as we're holding on, right? Because we can't make the letting go happen. But as the samadhi goes deeper, the seeing can go deeper. We can see what the Buddha pointed to in the insight teachings of as you contemplate experience directly, breath, body, patternings, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, sense, anything, anything that can arise, as you contemplate this directly with some steadiness of mind, you'll see that its nature is to keep moving. Its nature is moving when we're not fixed on something. Its nature is to move. Its nature is to move anyway, but we fix and then we're in a bind. We try and hold on, encapsulate. He said, it's changing. And in our practice, we're asked to give attention to that. In our direct perception, the fact that things keep fading away, they keep dissolving the breath. No sooner have you had this lovely breath and it keeps dissolving back. It follows the rhythm of all things. They're born into existence and they drop away at whatever timing is in the nature of things for that phenomena. When the conditions are no longer there to support this life, that's called me, this body drops away. That contemplation through direct experience within the silence can help us see directly that life keeps letting go of us. That there isn't something to take hold of here. And that we get um, more trust in recognizing that. The Buddha also pointed to two more characteristics about experience. He said, yes, keep directing it, contemplating it directly. You will also see that when you're holding on, it really hurts. The dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of trying to encapsulate life, which supports us to, to give up, actually. Not give up on life, but the relinquishment, the real letting go that is not an avoidance, but is a... Um, out of compassion, actually, for ourselves. And he said, contemplate this too, that anything that arises cannot, as Kirsten was speaking about last night, this is another way, another angle on the same thing, cannot be said to be I, me, or mine. It's not got an entityhood. It's not got a reality that is isolated from everything else. There isn't a thing called 
I am angry. It's when certain conditions arise, this formation arises, and if I leave it alone and don't act it out and don't push it away, it dissolves back into the silence. That which I thought was me, that which I thought was me, as I was speaking about at the beginning, all of these patternings cannot be taken as self. They arise when the conditions are there for them to arise, and they cease when the conditions are no longer there. And that can really alter the way we meet our mind that when I come into the meditation hall, it was actually, it was lovely in the group this afternoon of people seeing, yeah, mind comes up with these things of, I'm better than you, or I'm worse than you, or, um, yeah, it's not so shameful. It just, it's a, con- it's a conditioning that shapes. I don't have to believe it, and it drops away. Wisdom asks us to see deeply into the nature of experience. Why? Because that's what will be supportive for liberation. From not having to define myself by any condition that arises. So let's sit together for a minute. May all beings meet themselves with kindness. May all beings meet one another with kindness. And may all beings know release.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.